that last song we just sang, Preach the Message. It was perfect. Angela, did you pick that out? That was great. That was excellent. So uh, we were with Mark and Jenny and family yesterday, had a great time. Mark's doing um, really well, improving every day. And he wanted me to just uh, let you know that he loves all of you and misses you. And I believe he said he's going to try to text you all tomorrow. So if he has your phone number and stuff, I'm sure that you'll be able to receive that. Um, so uh, those songs were perfect for the message today. Um, so I entitled this, Are You Living With Fear or Faith? And that was the theme of, of um, all of the songs. And um, so we look at that. If you uh, have a, a worship folder, bulletin, inside that is some notes that you can look at. Um, it's like an eye test every week, depending on how big I make the font <laughs> for all of you. So sometimes I'll do like a full page and folder in half. This time I just did um, half. So get your magnifying glasses out and those kind of things. That'll really help. Um, so just before we look into God's word, let's just pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you that there are um, writers of songs that is able to capture the truths of your word and put them to music, and then um, we're able to uh, glean from those truths, and uh, with a um, some kind of a melody and all that, sometimes it helps us to remember maybe a little bit better about some of those truths, but we know ultimately the truths come from your word, and uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and so we thank you for your word, we thank you for the power of it, we thank you for the truth of it. We thank you, Father, that it's um, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's able to go down to the very bone and marrow of our lives. We need that. Um, we need your word to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and to help us to be ready, Father, to serve you um, whichever way you may call us. So we pray your blessing uh, on your word today and on your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, just as we start out, uh, just that little introduction there in a world, in our world and in our lives, we regularly have some very difficult situations we must face. We all face those. I mean, every one of us. It's not um, if we run into various trials, it's when we run into those trials. Um, these situations can sometimes bring fear into our lives. We all know that things that we're dealing with in our world today, the conflict in Israel, border issues, terrorist threats, racial tensions, political agendas, and other world events can make us feel uneasy, even scared of what can happen. Closer to home, our, our economy, uh, financial security, our health, our children, and or our grandchildren's future, uh, catastrophic, catastrophic events, spiritual attacks, long-term sickness, and even death, these and more can make us feel fearful. Um, but in the Gospels, I love the Gospel accounts. I love the Gospel events. It's, they're so instructive. Uh, and in the Gospels, sometimes um, events that are recorded have a reoccurring theme that connects them. And then Jesus frequently uses these related events to teach his disciples um, and us, obviously, principles that he wants us to know and have be, to be part of our um, everyday lives. Um, 
the four events that we're going to look at, we'll do that over uh, two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, um, both four events that we're going to be looking at may seem unconnected because they happen in different locations and involve different people with different life circumstances. But what we will see is that they are all connected with the same theme, fear, and faith. We're going to see that throughout. All four of these events happen in a sequence of about two days. So as we read it, just keep in mind that this is over a two-day period. Um, uh, all the gospel writers have John, so the synoptic gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record all four of these events. Um, there's another theme that you're going to see in these events of four different miracles that Jesus uh, does, um, showing his power as proof that he really is the Messiah um, and that he's the Son of God. Um, he shows his sovereign power over all these four things, over creation, uh, we'll see that today, over demons, we'll see that today also, and then next week he's going to show his sovereign power over sickness and over death. So as we make our way through um, this passage over the next two Sundays, we want to ask ourselves this question. Are we living with fear or with faith? So if you would turn to Mark chapter 4, verse um, 33, we want to read this section, and then we'll refer back to it. I didn't put the scriptures on your page there because I couldn't fit it. Uh, maybe if I would have done the bigger print and the bigger page, I could have, but uh, it's, a, it's a fairly long text. But we want to read it, and you can get the flow of it. You can get the feel of it. You can kind of see what's going on. That's so important as we're looking at, at God's Word. There's, there's a flow to the Scriptures, whether it be in the Epistle or the Old Testament or in the Gospels, there's a flow to it. By the way, one thing that you might look at getting, and sometimes they'll, they'll be in your Bible, uh, but, a, but a harmony of the Gospels, that is, where the Gospel accounts, all four of them, all four gospel writers, where um, somebody harmonized them. That is, they put all the events that each one wrote, they put them in order. And so when you're looking at an event, whether it's Jesus' resurrection or healing of a blind man or whatever it might be, you can see which gospel writers wrote about that incident and you get more information. It's like when there's a car accident, police, when they come and they investigate the car accident, they look for witnesses. And so witness number one over here he was over here on the right um, he didn't look up until he heard the crash and then he saw whatever kinds of things someone else they said I saw the whole thing I saw the car coming someone else was over here so they take all those accounts right and they get a clearer picture of what happened the same thing in the gospels because not each writer writes about every detail the Holy Spirit as he led men to um, write these accounts down um, um, they, uh, um, the Holy Spirit gave them different information, brought different things to their memory. So as you look at these accounts and you look at which writers wrote about it, you can get a fuller picture of what was going on. So we're looking at Mark, but I, I tried to put in there um, the, uh, where the accounts are also seen in Matthew and in Luke. So you could look at a future time if you wanted to read those, and I'll be referring to some of those. Um, but we're just going to read the Gospel of Mark. So verse... Um, chapter 4 and, and verse 30. Let's start with verse 33. Um, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them 
as far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, and he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So if you went back to the beginning of chapter 4, you'd see Jesus was teaching in parables. He was in a boat because uh, there were so many people on the shore. Um, it, they were crowding him, so he got into a boat, and he's just off the shore, and so he's teaching these parables. Parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil, and some other parables. Um, on that day, the same day he was teaching, when evening came, he said to them, let's go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very afraid and said to one another, Who is this then, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we want to just kind of look at that passage and work our way through. So first we see Jesus is teaching. Um, he's been teaching, again, like I said, off of the shore, on the, in the boat. He's been teaching in parables. Then he pulls his disciples aside privately, and he, he tells them what the parable means. So he's helping them to interpret them. So when he's done teaching, he's been teaching all day. When he's done teaching, they don't get out of the boat. He says to them, let's go to the other side. So they stay in the boat, and they start going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Again, I would encourage you, as you're going through the scriptures, if you're not sure where something's at, you're not sure what it looks like, or where on the map, or in your mind, when you picture Israel, where it's at, it's a good thing to just look in the back of your Bible to find out so you can picture that. So they're on the one side near Bethsaida, and they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Usually when they would travel like that, they wouldn't necessarily go through the middle of it. They would go closer to the edge, but it seems like this time they were going more away from the shore um, and all of a sudden uh, a storm begins to rage a, a typical fishing boat that was on the sea of galilee I, I was able to see one that they found and they thought it was from the time of jesus was about 27 feet uh, long about seven feet wide about four and a half feet deep you would usually have a sail um, and it would have a rudder and it would place for oars so they could maneuver, you know. So when they were fishing out there and they're throwing their nets, they didn't want to have the sail up, but they could move around with the oars. So it usually would be about that. It, the, most of these disciples were fishermen and they were experienced in that. So they were used to storms coming up. Um, sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. Uh, mountains kind of all around it. Um, and so they'd have these storms and these winds would come in from the north and it could it get pretty choppy but this was different than that so the storm is raging um, uh, Matthew describes this uh, fierce storm he uses the Greek words megos which we talked about that the other day uh, last Sunday I think megos which big huge large uh, and then he uses the word seismos where we get our word for seismology or a seismograph and that measures an earthquake right um, and so the way that Matthew described it, it was like an earthquake on the water. It was so, uh, they were jumping up and down. The waves were all over. It said that the waves kept crashing in. The way that Mark and Luke described it, more like a, a tempest or with hurricane winds. That's the Greek words that they used. So with those two together, it was a terrible storm. 
it was uh, it was um, it was a difficult storm for them to maneuver in, and they were afraid. They were used to storms coming up, but they were afraid. Um, it was threatening to sink the boat. They were they were fearing for their lives. And guess what? Jesus is asleep in the boat, right? Um, Jesus sleeping in the stern of the boat, usually in these boats, so that the fishermen could rest when they threw in their nets and all all of a sudden just pull them out again. They would rest, so they would have some cushions there. Jesus happened to be sleeping on one of these cushions. And so the disciples, in their fear, they wake Jesus up and they say, Teacher, do you not care? It doesn't matter to you. Does it matter to you, Jesus, that we are perishing? We're about to come to ruin. That's the idea of the word there. We're about to, we're about to perish. We're about to die. We're about to be destroyed. Uh, and they, they accuse Jesus to be indifferent about their peril, about what's about to happen. But before Jesus talks to the disciples when he stands up um, Jesus rebukes the storm he rebukes the wind and says to the sea peace be still literally it's be quiet be muzzled and I found that so interesting he uses those same words when he casts out a demon he does that several different times these same exact words um, he uses in Mark 1 and Luke chapter 4 um, possibly indicating that what was behind this storm because it was so much different than other storms that the disciples had experienced, it could have been part of the demonic activity. And so, just like we saw Satan be able to do some things to Job, to cause some storms, to have the house collapse, different things that God permitted um, uh, in Job's life, um, we see here that possibly this was a, a demonic-type storm. It was, it was made by, um, by the demons. They were able to, to do some different things here. Um, so possibly indicating that it was a demonic storm because Jesus, as it were, cast the demons out of the storm. Um, the storm was different than the disciples had ever experienced. So then Jesus, after he says to the storm, be quiet, be still, what's amazing is that it stopped immediately. You know, when, when a storm kind of blows through, you, if you're on a lake or you're near a lake or you're, you're in your home or wherever, the trees still kind of move a little bit and... And if you're near the water, you can see the waves are big, and then they start to slow down, and they gradually kind of stop. They, this, the description here is they stopped immediately. That's what was so, and, and what's really interesting is that the, that scared the disciples as much as the storm itself did, because it was so unusual for things to stop immediately. But we see that Jesus is Lord of creation also. So when he says to the storm, be quiet, be still, be muzzled. It stopped immediately. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be weird? I mean, you're, in a, you're at some storm, and all of a sudden it stopped, and it's totally quiet. The birds start singing and, you know, the whole thing. But when Jesus says, be still, when Jesus said, be muzzled, be quiet, um, both the wind and the waves stopped immediately. So then he questions the disciples. Jesus says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so, and it's a Greek word that means cowardly. Why are you so cowardly? And then he says this to them, have you no faith? Literally, it's how have you not faith? That's literally what it says in the Greek. In other words, by now you should have faith. You should believe who I am. Okay, well, what have they seen up in this time? I look back um, to when Jesus first called the disciples, and here's some of the things that they'd already experienced with Jesus. 
Um, he, they had seen him cast out a demon out of a man in Capernaum. Um, they saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. Um, they saw him cleanse a leper. They saw him um, heal a man who had a withered hand. Remember that? They saw him do that. Um, they saw him um, heal the centurion's servant. And then they also saw, remember the widow at the city of Nain? Her son had died, and Jesus raised that boy back to life. They saw him do that. So they should have been able to say, you know what, this is, this is the God who does things miraculously. We can trust him. And so Jesus says, why have you not have any faith? And then they're afraid, and they say, who is this then? That even the wind and the sea obey him. The idea of obey there means that it, they submit at his command. In other words, what, when Jesus says to a demon or to creation or to death or to sickness, and he tells it to be gone, those things obey because he's the Lord uh, of lords and he's the king of kings. So, how have the disciples responded? As we look at the text and we kind of think about it, first of all, they feared for their lives. It's that word that we mentioned last week, phobos. Uh, it's a fear. And that kind of fear in the scriptures, usually it happens when something supernatural happens and people don't understand it. The disciples had that kind of fear when Jesus calmed the sea. We're going to see that some other people had that kind of fear as we look throughout this. So they feared for their lives. They accused Jesus for not caring about them. Uh, they responded to their situation with unbelief. They weren't believing. Where's your faith? They feared Jesus and questioned his true identity. And then I got thinking, what are some things that causes fear in us today? What are things that cause us to fear as Christians, as God's people? We doubt God's promises. And I just named one promise here. The work he's begun in us, he will complete. That's his promise. He's not going to go back on it. He promised. Think back now for a second. When they were about to go, they, Jesus finished teaching. And what did he say? Let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's go in the middle and drown. Right? He didn't say that. He said, let's go to the, that's his promise. That's his word. Let's go to the other side. I thought that was so interesting. Let's go out and get scared in the middle. He didn't say that. He said, we're going to the other side. He said, the work I've begun in you, I will complete it. And then all these other verses that I mentioned are all promises that we need to make sure that we understand, know, and we count on. So sometimes we doubt God's promises. Sometimes we, we doubt God's presence. That's what they did. Jesus was right in the boat. He was right there. A promise, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, right? Sometimes we doubt that God knows our situation. They said, don't, don't you care, Jesus? Don't, don't you know what's going on? Um, a verse that we all count on is he works all things together for good. It doesn't matter what's going on in our life. It doesn't matter what's happening. He's going to, that's his promise. He works all things. Not some things, not most things, not many things, all things. He works all things together. It, and the idea of the word here is he harmonizes all things. 
He puts everything, all the different facets of whatever circumstance we're in, all of those different facets, all those different parts, he harmonizes, he works them all together so they all fit perfectly to his plan, what he wants to do. Sometimes we doubt that God cares for us. I thought of 1 Peter, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That's God's promise. You cast your care on me because I care for you. I care about what you're going through. I know. I understand. Sometimes we doubt God's power. And I thought of Ephesians 3, that he's able to do abundantly above all we could ask or even think. And then lastly, sometimes we doubt God's timing. I thought of Romans chapter 12, verse uh, 2, that God's will, Paul says, is good, acceptable, and perfect. When, God, when you're in the middle of God's will, it couldn't get any better. Even if there's difficulties, even if there's hard times, even doesn't matter what's going on, being in the middle of God's will, God's will is perfect. It could not be any better. God's never going to look back, back into eternity past and say, you know what, I should have done this, or maybe I should have responded this way, or I could have done that. Maybe that would have worked out better. He'll never say that because it never will happen that way. Because everything he does, everything he allows, everything that's in his sealed plan is perfect. We may not see it that way. I don't see it that way a lot. But I count on what God has said, that my plans, what I do, is perfect. Now there's three more events, and we're going to look at one of them. Um, there's three more events that God is, that Jesus uses in the disciples' lives to teach them about fear and faith. So we're going to just look at one more, and then next week we'll look at the other two, um, and we'll just kind of continue this theme. So we saw he had power over creation. Now we're going to see that he has power over demons. So look at Mark chapter 5, and uh, let's read that, just uh, those 20 verses. So after that um, storm had calmed down, they came to the other side of the sea. Guess what? Just like he said, right? How many times have you and I ever done that? We're worried, we're fretting, we're, we're doing whatever, whatever it is. We're not trusting God or, you know, we're doubting or whatever it might be. And we get to where God had planned for us to be. And we say, why did, why did I worry so much? Why, why did I fret so much? Why did I not believe God? But they made it to the other side of the sea, just like Jesus said they would. Into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself, or gashing himself, actually not gnashing, but he was gashing. Either, either of those is terrible, right? Gashing or gnashing. Um, he was gashing himself with stones. Uh, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up to him and bowed down before him and shouted with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? 
And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby the mountain, on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, the very man who had, they had seen had been the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. They began to implore him to leave the region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And now he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everybody was amazed. So now we have Jesus has power over the demons. So once the disciples get to the other side of the boat, early the next morning, they go to a populated area, mostly by Gentiles, the Decapolis. If you were to picture in your mind the Sea of Galilee, so Israel to the... Um, Mediterranean would be to the west, and then the Decapolis was everything on the other side, which would be modern-day Syria, right, or part of modern-day Syria. And a lot of Gentiles, that's why there was a herd of pigs. Obviously, um, under the law, the Jews could not eat pigs. They couldn't eat swine. They couldn't eat pork. Um, and so this was a herd and uh, that was probably tended by uh, Gentiles, owned by Gentiles. And uh, that whole area happened to be, there were some Jews there, but mostly uh, Gentiles lived there. Um, when, he, when they came up, uh, Mark only mentions one demon-possessed man, uh, but Matthew, I believe it is, uh, mentions that there were two. But they center in kind of on this one guy because he was probably the most scary guy. Uh, he was the one who was... Um, He had a legion of demons in him, so and the legion is 6,000. Can you imagine that? I mean, bad enough, it'd be bad enough to have one demon in you, right? Um, but there were 6,000 of them in there. Um, so the, this one that, that Mark mentions uh, is kind of the more prominent of the two demons, or the two men that were demon-possessed. Um, and so in this description that he gives, and we're, I'm just going to kind of read over it or, and, sh and again show you that. I didn't get, put it in your notes, so you can just listen. So here's some things about him. He dwelt, he lived among, among the tombs. Remember he said that? And, he, and in the mountains there. Um, Luke adds that he was naked. Um, so um, demon possession usually has a lot of things about it. Um, and um, you see quite frequently that... Um, there are some sensual things about demon possession also. Um, and then Matthew said he was exceedingly fierce uh, in his description. Um, remember it said in, in um, Mark here that he frequently broke free from the chains 
and the stocks that he was put on. So he had some supernatural demon possession type power way above what any human being could do. He would break the shackles, the, the chains, so he had some kind of supernatural demonic uh, strength day and night. So he didn't sleep a whole lot. Day and night, um, he was repeatedly crying out and cutting himself with sharp rocks. Whether it was the man trying to somehow get rid of the demons inside of him, or if it was the demons themselves that were causing them to do that, we don't know, it doesn't say, but probably some of each. I think the man was aware. Uh, he just couldn't do anything about it. I think when, as we saw him run, uh, we saw Jesus, he ran over there. I think the demons helped him to do that, but he was a willing participant. He, he knew who Jesus was. He'd heard of Jesus, too. Um, no one was able to uh, subdue him. No one was able to control him. Anytime they tried to control him, they would have a, even have a guard there. Uh, now, that'd be a great job to have, right? Now, you get to guard the demoniac this week. That's your job. Uh, that wouldn't be very fun. Um, and he would break away from him also. Um, and he was from a nearby city, Luke said. It didn't say that in Mark, but in Luke it says um, he's from a nearby city. So he was known by the people. And can you imagine how your heart would go out to somebody like that? Somebody that you knew, someone that maybe you didn't know him personally, but you knew he was from the area. You, you'd seen him in town or whatever it might be. And, and here's, you're afraid of him, but you feel, you feel bad for him too. So that was the man with the, with the unclean spirit. So then you have demons inside the man. Uh, the demons recognize who Jesus is immediately and come and bow before him. Notice that no one could tame or subdue the, de the demon-controlled man, but in Jesus' presence, the demons bow in submission and reverence. And I think the man did too. He knew. I mean, he was there. He, he knew he needed something. He knew he needed to be healed. Um, these demons call Jesus the son of the most high God. They obviously know who he is. In fact, it's just so interesting. And this, this happens quite frequently where the demons, when they see Jesus, they'll say something like, have you come to torment, us, torment me early? Um, in Matthew, in this, in, about this passage, it says, the demon says, have you come to torment us before the time. So the demons know that there's going to be a time when they're going to be tormented, when they're going to be judged. Um, Luke says it this way, that, that the demons begged him not to command them to go into the abyss. So interesting. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but um, there are some demons that have already been judged. And you could look at... Um, what happened in uh, Genesis chapter 6 when the demons, when men uh, that were indwelt by, taken over by demons, cohabitated with women, those, those uh, demons were judged. And you can see it in Jude chapter 1, and you can see it also in um, sec, uh, 2 Peter chapter 4. Let me just read. This is 2 Peter chapter 4, or chapter 2 rather, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, held for judgment. So they haven't gone to their final judgment yet, but right now they're in some kind of a pit. They're in some kind of a holding place. And then Jude says something similar. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place, 
These he, he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It's interesting when he talked about the abyss, it's the, it's the Greek word abasso, that makes sense, right? That's where we get the word abyss. And it's used seven times in the book of Revelation. And it's also the place where when God takes Satan for a thousand years during the millennium and puts him where he's in a captive place, where he can't roam around any longer for a thousand years, that's the place that he puts him in. It's the same word. So what these angels, they recognize Jesus' power. They recognize his authority. They recognize who he is. And what they say is, don't judge us yet. Don't put us in the place where those other angels are put until their final judgment. Don't do that to us. And you can see that as you read through the um, narrative of the gospel accounts, especially in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can see that that's how the demons respond to Jesus a lot. They are a defeated enemy. I want, I want you to make sure you know that. Even though Satan is against us and his demonic hordes are against us as believers, we're going to look at that in just a minute, um, know that, that what, when we battle, we're battling a defeated enemy, and they know they're defeated. They already know it. That, you can see that right from here. So they, part of their fear is that they have a fear of early judgment. And then the number of um, demons, we mentioned that. The demon said that we're many, and when Jesus asked, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. Probably the one that was answering was probably the leader of those 6,000 demons. Interesting in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, there's ranks of spirit beings. There's ranks of demonic beings. And if you look at that, uh, it's in the context of um, putting on the armor of God. Um, he says that there are ranks of demons. There's rulers, authorities, powers, forces. So there's some kind of ranking. I don't know what those are. I don't know if they're lieutenants or majors or you know what they are, but there's some kind of ranking. And so this one that answered is probably the one that was kind of in charge of all those other demons. Um, most likely the reason Jesus asked the demon's name um, so that um, the disciples and then the people later, the people from the town, would have an idea about what this man's situation, because they didn't know there were 6,000 demons in this guy, right? They knew he was acting weird. They, they may have understood that there was demonic possession because of his strength and different things like that. Um, but when he cast, when Jesus allowed them to go into those 2,000, the herd of 2,000 swine, that told the disciples, and it also told the, the townspeople as that story went around, that there was more than one demon in this guy. Whether they understood that there were 6,000 or a great number, we don't know. But that would give indication about this guy's plight, about his situation. So why did Jesus give permission um, for the demons to go into this herd of pigs? It, it's, a, it's a vivid display of the deliverance of this demon-possessed man. And imagine the difference in this man when those demons go out of him and go into the herd and then that herd rushes down. I've been to the place where they say that this happened uh, on the um, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and it's a nice gentle slope that goes right down um, to the right to the edge of the water, goes right down to the water. They say that's where that took place. Whether it did or not, I don't know for sure, but um, they say it, that was on that side of the lake, so that's they got at least half right anyway. Um, so, number one, this deliverance um, 
was a vivid display of it um, and to show the large number of demons and also to, to show that God values a human life more than he values. It's not that God wants us to treat animals wrongly. Proverbs says we shouldn't do that. But, but is that man's life, is he more valuable than that herd of pigs? Of course he is. Um, as I was um, looking at this, um, Barb, my wife, said that she thought this might be the first case of the swine flu. Um, John MacArthur said that he thought that maybe uh, those demons were committing suicide. I don't know. I, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, anyway, um, it's okay to laugh in church, right? It's okay. And smile. Okay, good. Just want to know. So, so I thought this would be a great time for us to just look at just a little bit about how Satan works. So how was he working in this demon-possessed man? Um, he had him in isolation. He was in torment. You could look at those verses there. Um, he was controlling his mind, his body. It's funny that when the people came and saw him after he, the demons had been cast out, what did they say? He was clothed and in his right mind. Because what Satan tries to do is he tries to control the mind of people. Um, and then lastly, self-destruction. So that was for the demon-possessed. What about the non-Christian? Last week we talked about that every non-Christian and us before we became Christians were, are in Satan's kingdom. And you can look at those verses. Um, it's interesting, too, that non-Christians are empowered by Satan. That's what Ephesians 2.2 2 says. It says that he works, the spirit works in that spirit, um, works or energize it's where we get our word for energy um, he works he energizes the sons of disobedience the sons of disobedience is the unsaved so he empowers them and then ultimately he wants them to go to eternal destruction because that's where they're going matthew 25 says that hell not the lake of fire that's the last place but hell is prepared for the devil and his angels that's what jesus said in matthew 25 and he wants some company. How does he attack Christians? What does he do to us who are believers? He wants us to act independent of God. That's what he did to Jesus. When Jesus was tempted, remember those temptations, he wanted Jesus to act independently of his Father. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus was physically hungry. Could Jesus have done that? Certainly he could have. My wife does the opposite. She turns bread into stones okay come on that was funny um, he tempted Jesus to act independently outside of God's will for Jesus during that time that's what he does to us he wants you to not trust God that's when he attacks he wants you to doubt that's how he attacks he wants you to fear he wants you to be prideful all those kinds of things you could look at those verses and there's lots of other ones um, Satan is seeking an advantage to get a place in our life that's what the idea of those verses are. Um, 2 Corinthians 2.11, I just quote a little portion of that. So that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, because that's what he tries to do. He tries to take advantage of us. He wants to get a place to operate from in our lives. That's what Ephesians 2.27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. It, it literally means to gain a foothold. It was a military term. Don't let Satan... Find a place in your life to gain a foothold. 
because of your doubt, because of your fear, because of your pride, because of whatever other kinds of things. And he wants to destroy our effectiveness. That's really what he's about. And you can look at Ephesians chapter 6. That's about the armor of God. He says in there, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So what was the response of the herdsmen in the town? The herdsmen ran throughout the area telling uh, and, and into the town telling others what they had seen. Um, when those from the area came, and Matthew says the whole city came out, um, and saw the once demon-possessed man now clothed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet, they begged Jesus to depart. Instead of saying, Jesus, that's wonderful. We, don't, we know this guy. He, he's been part of our area for a long time. They didn't say that. They said, Jesus, we want you to leave. And it says they were afraid. And it's that Greek word phobos. And, and a lot of times that word is used for people that would get afraid after something supernatural had happened. People feared, just like the disciples did when Jesus calmed the storm and told it to stop and it stopped immediately and they were afraid. That's the same kind of fear that these uh, people are saying. And what it shows is their unbelief. It shows their unbelief. Notice that they did not rejoice that the man had been delivered. They did not thank Jesus for setting the man free. Instead, they wanted Jesus to leave. They wanted him to get out of the area. In fact, they entreated him, it says. They begged him to leave. How did the delivered man, though, how did he respond? As we read the passage, those last few verses, he wanted, he entreated to, to, to stay with Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat, remember? He wanted to get in there because he wanted to be a follower. He wanted to be a disciple. He was thankful that he'd been delivered. And he wanted to be a follower of Christ, verse 18. Jesus said, no, I want you to go talk to your people. They were, he wasn't Jewish. He was probably a Gentile. I want you to go into the Decapolis, and that's where he went. And I want you to talk to people about what I've done. What has Jesus done for you? He walked in obedience and faith. And he proclaimed what Jesus had done for us, for him. So from these things, what can we gain to help us so that we're living by faith and not living with fear? What do these events teach us? Living by faith is believing God's promises. That's the first thing. We have to believe God's promises. And we have to put those into practice. If you believe something is true, then you act upon that. That's what believing in something is. You act upon that. If I was to tell you, if I handed you, we don't have bank books any longer, but if I went on my phone and I said, look, here's your account, I just put a million dollars in there. If you believe me, what would you do? You would go write a check, right? If, I, if you believe me, you're going to go make a withdrawal of some of that money. If you say, nah, you didn't do that, you faked that somehow, you don't believe me, you don't respond to that. When you believe something, you respond to it. So the first thing about living by faith or living with faith is that we believe God's promises and we respond to those promises. We acknowledge God's presence, even in the hardest times. God, we know you're with us. This is hard. This is difficult. This is grievous, whatever it might be. But we know you're with us. You promised you'd never leave us, nor would you forsake us. You know, you acknowledge, you understand that God knows your situation. God isn't off on some part in the far universe, too busy to know about what's going on in your life. 
realize God's care for you. God, I know you love me. I know you care. I, I, I just, I somehow help me to know, to understand that. Help me to sense that. Um, relying on God's power. Let me just say this. We, we, are, we see deliverances here, and God's still able to do that. But God shows his power just as much when he takes you through the situation and doesn't change the situation. God's power is seen just as much when he gets you through it. When Paul prayed three times to take away whatever his affirmity was, um, what was Jesus' answer? My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. God is able to deliver you, and he's able to take you through. Realize, re relying on God's power, trusting in God's timing. That's a hard one for all of us. We want God to do it immediately, right now. Take care of it. Boom. You can do it, God, because he can. He could change things immediately, and they would change forever. But he doesn't always do that. In fact, very rarely does he do that. But we need to trust in God's timing. And then the last thing is we need to obey God's word. If we practice those things and put those in our life and we're doing those things, then we're going to be living by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the power of it, the conviction of it. We all need help in this. But we, we, we don't do this perfectly by any means. So, Father, we pray as your spirit teaches us and reminds us of these things. Help us, we pray. Help us to honor you. Help us to be like the man, because we've been delivered too. We've been delivered from sin and destruction and death and separation from you forever. We've been delivered from that. Help us to be followers, disciples, learners, servants, Help us, Father, to be able to tell others about what you've done in our lives. Father, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we can do that. Encourage your people today, Father, I pray. We all have struggles. Uh, none of us are perfect. We all have faults. But thank you, Father, that you've forgiven us. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us instruction, Father. And we know our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against demonic forces in heavenly places. But we know two things. They're defeated enemies, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.